Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. In our last episode of Go Bold, that's episode 52, we introduced you to Commander Corey Gleason of the Royal Canadian Navy. We spoke with Commander Gleason when he was the commanding officer of HMCS Harry DeWolf, the Royal Canadian Navy's first Arctic and offshore patrol vessel. We did the interview on board the ship when it was in Victoria, British Columbia, which was one of its stops on its maiden deployment in 2021, which circumnavigated North America. In this episode, we continue our chat with Commander Gleason, who shared his first-hand perspective of transiting the Northwest Passage and technical aspects of operating in the Arctic. You'll learn about the capabilities of this new class of Navy offshore patrol ship, and you'll hear Commander Gleason's personal and emotional account of the historic and cultural significance of the deployment. You'll also hear about the importance of presence in the North and in the Arctic, and all of this is straight from an expert in Arctic naval operations, and that is our guest, Commander Corey Gleason. So let's roll the music and pick up our chat from our last episode. left uh, uh, Halifax, we proceeded to Iqaluit, we brought on some scientists who had some things that they wanted to do up north, we brought on some RCMP who were from different divisions in Canada that uh, wanted to get a look at our ships, kind of figure out how do they use them, how do they work from our ships and what can we do to support them, or do they have to bring their own equipment, like just the, you know, the logistical things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't consider until you got on board the ship. And right. so they needed to they, they needed to deploy from our ships. We put them in boats and we, we made up scenario-based events and exercises to come back and just talk about, okay, how did that work? And how, how do we function? We had um, a mass casualty uh, event where we had um, a bunch of military people on board what was a leased ship and it was a joint operation with the United States Coast Guard, Canadian Coast Guard and the Canadian Navy. Uh, the Canadian Navy was the principal actor in supporting the function, but they had 50 players on board that were all, you know, casualties of some sort or people that were elderly that needed to move or, or were stressed by situations. And we had to deal with all 50 of them. Um, and uh, and we, we, we got small away teams from the ship. And that was medical people. That was the, the RCMP. That was uh, our damage control folks on board the ship. Uh, we had security folks that were military security folks. We put this team together, briefed them, and then put one person in charge and made that way team go on board the ship. And each one of them were, like, they're subject matter experts in their own fields, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, the RCMP went on board and they treated it as if it were like a crime scene. Right. Like, how did you get to this point? Like, right. well, what really happened here? Is there something malicious that occurred here? And this is in domestic Canada, right? And so you, you need that police element there. We can help. We can, put, we can put bandages on people. We can move people as military do. And we, I mean, during COVID, and we had uh, all of our doctors and nurses going on the interior to help old folks' homes and all kinds of things. Right. So we can do those types of things. Uh, but there are other things that we just can't do because we're in uniform. Like we, um, and we need, we need a police force to do that or a CBSA or, uh, um, or Parks Canada to do the work that they uniquely do. Um, but we can support them by moving them there. And we can support them by um, supporting them on the sea. Right? And that's one of the interesting things about this ship. You, know, you mentioned a crew complement of 65, but what is the capacity that you have 
inherent within the ship to bring on additional people. Yeah, so I mean, the, the ship has 87 bunks. Okay. But um, I can, you know, my, my hangar, for instance, is, uh, is two stories tall. Right. Um, and if I keep my helicopter ranged out on deck, I can turn that into, I'd say, probably about 75 bunks if I needed it. Um, so there's lots of capacity to grow. And, you know, this particular class of ship, I like to tell people that you're only restricted by your imagination. You know, just because it doesn't present itself in front of you doesn't mean that there's not a way to make something happen. Um, you know, even the boat bays, we have fully enclosed lifeboats in, in the boat bays. Take the boats out of the boat bays and those boat bays become something different. Totally. Right? right. Um, and so there, there's lots of capacity in the ship to test, one, two, test three. Route. Broadcast. <laughs> there's, there's lots of yeah. there's lots of capacity in the ship to uh, to support a, a series of operations and functions that um, uh, you know people wouldn't think of. Yeah, they really think. Of. I, I bet you some of your listeners, uh, as we the, the things that we talk about here, um, they you know they, they think warship, 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 but you know I bet you they're they're, they're hearing about the sea lift capacity and the fact that uh, you know. Yeah, I can bring, bring civilian helicopters on board my flight deck and uh, um, and we bring doctors and nurses and we can change the construct of the uh, of the hangar in such a way that we can mass casualty clearing on board the ship is probably surprises a lot of them. And so that was the first phase where we brought the RCMP on board. We went to nuke, we topped up in fuel, continued to operate with the RCMP. And then um, the Canadian Navy has a tremendous tradition The Canadian Navy has a wonderful tradition where we um, we affiliate our ships with major cities across the country, regions, um, and maybe smaller towns. And so, for instance, HMCS Victoria, one of our uh, submarines, are named after the city of Victoria, and they're affiliated to the city of Victoria, and there's a friendship and bond that's associated with that, HMCS Vancouver, and so on and so forth. And um, the Harry to Wolf class... Um, uh, all six ships. You wouldn't know it if you looked at a chart, but the Inuit have carved up the Arctic in, in a unique way and into six different regions. Okay. And so the Inuit have carved up uh, the Arctic in a unique way with six different regions. And through a series of visits and correspondence and face-to-face -face talks, the people of the North have embraced the Canadian Navy to affiliate our ships with those six regions, which is really quite exciting for us. And so Harry the Wolf got the Kikatani region, which is the largest of the six regions, and it has 13 hamlets in it. Okay. And we've been communicating with one another uh, back and forth since 2019, um, looking for ways to collaborate and work together. Um, I've made no secret that I have a personal ambition of, um, you know, the Canadian Army has Canadian Army Rangers. Why can't the Canadian Navy have Canadian Naval Rangers, but in a unique way to, to the Navy? And, you know, in my, my, my humble opinion is asking some of the youth of the Inuit communities to don a uniform and sail in the ship um, and, uh, and, and contribute to our operations up north. Um, and, you know, Such idea. noting, you know, that, that they're maritime people, right? right they really exactly. are. They live yeah. right on the water. Exactly. Uh, and they function on the water and they function on the ice. Um, and having them on board, and you can appreciate if it's a dead of winter and there's ice around, um, there might be some place they don't want us to break that ice, right? And if we have folks on board that are working with us, 
uh, that are saying, hey, uh, yeah, my uncle's using that area down right. there. Don't don't right. don't go break that ice, or or the whole community uses that, and they they traverse over to another island completely, and right. and so those types of things I think are extraordinarily important to be um, you know good partners up north, um, and uh, um, you know. I wonder how long we're going to do tests for. So I might um, keep it in there just to see we're just, on the ship. <laughs> just yeah. to say you're on the ship. Anyway, <laughs> uh, just to say that uh, we, we've affiliated ourselves with the uh, uh, the Kikatani region. Um, we visited them in a Iqaluit, uh, made some face-to-face visits. Uh, we exchanged gifts. Um, we had some sailors make these plaques with the actual ship on the side of it, the ship's crest, and put the names of the premier, the president of the QIA, um, uh, myself, my coxswain, and uh, the fleet commander. And as a demonstration of our commitment to the Kikatani region, we asked them to sign it. So we all signed the plaque. And they kept it, and I asked them to put it on display publicly. So when people came into their office, they would say, you know, they, well, what's that? And it would be an opportunity for them to have a conversation. And we would always be in their minds that, uh, you know, they're affiliated to the Navy. Um, and uh, there's, there's another thing there just, just on the table. Um, is a painting of HMCS Harry DeWolf. It's a bit of a depiction of Harry DeWolf. It's an artist's impression from our winter trials. Um, uh, after doing about uh, 40 hours of bridge watch mentoring, um, I needed to take a break and get some sleep. I parked the ship in a nice flow to sit and drift overnight. And um, this polar bear and its two cubs came out to visit. And uh, I called the crew to the bridge. They were all really excited. I could still hear their voices to this to this day, and how excited they were that they're looking at polar bears. They're in a nice flow, and you know I had all these big spotlights for uh, on because that's what you use when you're navigating. Back here. And um, uh, anyway, just to say that uh, that that picture was commissioned by one of my officers' father, who gave his well, once the painting was done. The original went to that officer. Uh, his father printed 10 of these pictures uh, for us. The artist signed all 10 of them. And I've been putting them in frames. And as I go to visit a community, I present it to the mayor. And we start talking about affiliation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the first part of our three-day planned visits in the three hamlets that we went to and went to Pond in Lake Reese Fjord and Arctic Bay was the first day was breaking bread and uh, having a, uh, a barbecue um, in hopes that folks would just come out of their houses and, and come and visit and, you know, have, have a burger or have a hot dog and, or have a pop and we'll, we'll have a talk and introduce our sailors to you and stuff like that. And my hope was that they would become, that my, some of my sailors would start changing email addresses and start becoming, they did, um, start becoming friends with folks. Um, and uh, the second part of that was to go into the community center and have a conversation with folks uh, but while we were going around and, and having something to eat and talking to different folks, I solicited people specifically and asked them if they wouldn't mind telling their story because um, they were telling me all kinds of great things, mm-hmm. but they weren't. They, it wasn't broadcasted to a group of people. And so I asked them if they wouldn't mind telling their story to my sailors if we could get together in the hall. Yeah. And, and they did. And they told some terrific stories to our folks, uh, and they're all different ages. There was you know, people that were in their 60s that told a story, and some folks stood up. Some folks were a little bit too shy, and they stayed sitting down, but they still participated. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, we, we just kind of 
kick things off in that way. And then went to the mayor's office, presented the painting, uh, had a conversation, asked him to put the painting up someplace public. So, you know, when Harry DeWolf rolls into town, uh, it's their ship, 430 belongs to them. And, uh, um, and when we, when, you know, when they see the picture on the wall, they say, oh, there's our ship there. Um, and really kind of, you know, to, to, to kind of solidify that relationship. Um, and uh, I personally feel that they really were sincere about being part of what we're trying to do. Um, when we told them that they could come on board the ship for tours, they were incredibly excited. And I was really pleased that they really wanted to come on board. Unfortunately, we had to turn some folks away because we just ran out of time. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, that, that's beautiful, yeah, right? Exactly. I mean, that, yeah. that is a beautiful thing that yeah. they're so interested that we had to turn folks away. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, part of that, and I think your listeners will appreciate this, that there was a training component to what we were doing as well, particularly when we were moving people. So we're moving people from the hamlet to the ship. And if you recall, I talked about the ladders being able to deploy on the sides of the ship and stuff like that. Yep. And we've got a big landing craft on board the ship and we use our big 20 ton crane. And so we used all of the equipment to train sailors how to, and when we're at anchor on a moving platform to move a 17 ton boat off of the quarter deck into the water, move it to the beach line, um, conduct a beach landing with UTVs and things like that. And then start bringing civilians on board the ship through a landing craft and then bring that landing craft alongside the ship and figure out ways to get them safely on board the ship and when you think about humanitarian disaster relief functions and going into a place where there's a you know a significant earthquake or you have to move people um maybe it's just a security problem you still have to move people uh you know that, that we, we've developed those skills up north and uh and so you know affiliation was incredibly important uh and, uh, and I think we, I mean, there's, there's some evidence here. Your, your listeners can't see, but uh, to the right of me is uh, some things that are on my table in my cabin. And um, the first thing you see is a soccer ball with a bunch of names on it. And uh, when we went to Pond Inlet, the youth of the community were so excited that they wanted to play soccer with us. And I just thought, you, you guys play soccer a lot? Yeah. Oh, every night. I said, oh dear, they're good. <laughs> and so... So, right, right. And boy, they schooled us. But they, they took us to school and they, they were they, they really scored a lot of goals. And uh, yeah, right. Uh, but at the end of the game, they all signed the ball and gave it to the captain, which is, you know, just this, these, those little gestures uh, of uh, something tangible that we actually achieved with them. Um, uh, you know, uh, we were up in Greece Fjord. Greece Fjord is a terrible story um, where, and, and resolute, where families from northern Quebec were grouped together and moved to Greece Fjord and Resolute and they were separated yeah pretty tragic story and when you get up to if you're fortunate enough to get to Greece Fjord there's a carving or a sculpture of a woman and her child and it's carved to look directly west towards Resolute and if you go to Resolute you see a carving of a man and his dog Yeah, it's pretty. That's, yeah. That, that visual has got to be something that you'll never forget. No. No, so um, while we were there, um, I met um, a gentleman by the name of Larry. <laughs> okay. And uh, let me just clock myself here for a second. Um, so Larry was moved there when he was three years old. And... Uh, 
he shared his story with me. And he gave me a book, and the book tells the story. And his um his wife made these seals good business. And she gave them to me. I'm looking at them right now. Mm. Yeah, so um pretty heart wrenching stuff. But incredibly proud proud Canadians, which is fascinating. Because you you'd think that you'd be pretty bitter, right? But um they aren't they uh, they were pretty unhappy where they where they got landed. They were pretty unhappy with how they got treated, and they're never going to let you forget. Nor should they. No. Nor should they. Wow. But um, yeah, they're the both Resolute and uh, Grease Fjord are affiliates. Yeah. You know, there is sometimes we get we get thinking about mission specifics and goals, but. Not only, uh, a ship doesn't operate without a crew, and the crew are people that have lives. Right. And what a beautiful thing that you guys are actually now going into these communities, that the Royal Canadian Navy has now the capacity to go right. into these areas and engage with people and, and make them feel like, I mean, you guys have done such a service from what I can tell and, and absolutely appreciate from the things I'm looking at right now that, you know, you've you're doing your part yeah. to to engage with them and making them feel part of well of something too. I think they've done their part. Sure. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. you could tell, but I could barely talk right now. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty significant. I love it. Yeah. I love it. You know, and and uh, commander, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I think, mm. it, you know, that's that's a beautiful thing. Mm. Yeah, it's um. A ter- terrible, tragic story, um, one that we can't forget. Um, but our work up north um, is is really all that. You know, talk. It's it's about the people of the north. It's about the Inuit. It's about the Arctic. And don't be selfish about the Arctic. It doesn't belong to uh, to one person. It doesn't belong to uh, uh, people down south who um, you know don't 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 judge our, our Inuit for hunting and gathering and things like that. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. That's how they live. Um, you know, I, I recall back in the day how, how frustrated people were about sealing sure. and things like yeah, that, and, uh, and how frustrated people, uh, both, both from both sides. I mean, the people that were doing it couldn't understand it. Right. Like, what are you so upset about? This is what this is, this what, is, we've been, what, we this is what we do, right, right. right? Oh, they're so cute. Well, yeah, they're, but yeah. this is what we do, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? This is how we um, do. Right, yeah. right. And and the whales, and uh, you know, if you got up to um, Arctic Bay, you would have seen um, uh, a whaling that they did and um they have tags just like you do further south right they're regulated to 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 a degree Mm -hmm. and uh uh they they had so many whales come into uh admiralty inlet that um they they filled up all their tags in one day (laughs) and so you can appreciate that if somebody from the south saw this picture of whales on the beach that they'd be they'd they'd be really upset and but you know for 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 the inuit they're like this is awesome, right? right? Yeah, we, we, we're eating. Yeah, right, we're eating right. for a year. Yeah. This is awesome. Yeah. We're gonna fill up our fridges, and uh, everybody's going. Everybody's going to be eating for a year. And uh, it's all uh, perspective, isn't it? Yeah, it's all perspective. I think, you know, sometimes in this day and age, people are very quick to to make judgments without really consider. Put yourself in the other person's shoes. Right, right. And, um, and that's the beautiful thing about what you guys are are doing. Like, I mean, this is this is a historic 
um, deployment. And so not only do you have this privilege, but your whole crew, like, I mean, it's going on this journey. Yeah, they're going. They're, so, uh, and for your listeners, I mean, the, it's it's certainly not a vacation for them. No. I mean, they're, the, the level of work and learning that they had to go through throughout the whole process, not just, you know, not the fact that they had to learn about the ship and go through a whole bunch of things with me throughout the year before they could go north. But, you know, once they were north, um, the learning process was significant. Um, and uh, they all have their different stories to tell. Um, and once we were moving on out of the Kikatani region, we stopped off at Terra Bay, which is still in the Kikatani region, um, where Franklin Expedition first wintered over uh, and lost their first sailors. Um, there was a journey as professional mariners and sailors of the, uh, of the, of the Canadian Navy and, and our brothers and sisters from the Royal Navy, um, the, the, the things that they suffered and the, the trials and tribulations that they, they went through in, in search of the, the Northwest Passage and sailors losing their lives. I spent some time with my crew to kind of try my best to articulate, you know, what these folks were going through and then moving them ashore to experience it firsthand and just to sit there on the, on the beach and to just reflect on, because it was cold, mm-hmm. right? Um, there was polar bears there. I mean, there, there were polar bears that weren't that far away from us. And so the danger, all that stuff, I mean, we, we, I had century, wildlife centuries out there and stuff like that to, uh, to protect my sailors, but it was just to give them a sincere appreciation of what these folks went through um, you know, a hundred years ago and, uh, and how tough it was. Uh, well, it's more than a hundred years ago now, I guess 150 years ago. But it, When you charted this course for this, for this circumnavigation and going up into the Arctic, you had a choice of which way you wanted to go. Yeah, I did. Um, and, uh, the, the choice was, um, go through a less austere path and follow where HMCS Labrador went through, where she spent some time, uh, surveying the Bellet Strait and open that up for the dew line. So there was a shorter distance for the folks that were building the dew line to go through or to go through ice and spend days and days in ice. Um, And that was important to me because I had all these new sailors on board who needed to develop that. So we developed, you know, working with other government departments, we developed um, beach landings. We developed uh, moving large people on board the ship. We developed all this capacity. Now it was we. This is a new group of people. When you know, I think your listeners already know that we we spent the the winter last year in the dead of winter up north. That was a different group of people that were on board. And some of those people, their their clock ran out, and their clock ran out, meaning that uh, they they got promoted and they needed to move on away from the ship. And that's a natural progression inside of, with the ship's company. Sure. Um, and so some of those people uh, that that were on the winter trials weren't there for this trial. So I still needed to continue the the um, the circle of life, as it were, right. to where we have to continue to train junior officers and, and NCMs on board the ship, winterize the ship, and do all these things. Um, that they that they never heard of before or done before mm-hmm. and particularly on a brand new platform mm-hmm. so um, we opted for Larson Sound uh, going down Victoria Strait and going uh, and following uh, the tracks of, uh, of Franklin um, and Franklin uh, really a terrible and unfortunate story if you're Listeners are hopefully they as as I say these different places they're googling the, um, a map and they're looking at Larson and uh, Larson Sound and uh, um, Victoria Strait and, and King William Island. Uh, he ended up 
at the northern bit of King William Island. Uh, if you if you if you're looking at a chart, you you think about McClintock Strait, hit the Big Bulford Sea ice cap, and the Canadian Arctic problem is ice, of course, but it's not it's not Baltic ice. When I say Baltic ice, it's not just like first year ice that uh, that 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 free water freezes, water melts, water freezes, water melts. That's not the problem in the Arctic. You've got you've got old ice that has never melted in hundreds of years, that breaks away as a natural phenomenon from the Beaufort Sea cap, and it starts making its way because of the currents, the way they are, through the McClintock Strait, and it mixes in with the currents and, and water there, and in the wintertime that freezes. Mm-hmm. And then when that thaws, when if you're driving a ship, even if this class of ship, you need to be cognizant of the fact that you're, as you're interacting with ice, you might interact with old ice. And the problem with old ice is it's harder than cement. Right. It will punch a hole in your ship if you're not careful, right. and uh, if you're going too fast in particular. Um, and uh, and even if you do have a nice strength and hull, you can actually bend it, right? You sure. can you can actually bend the steel in such a way if you're not careful. Um, and of course, because it gets cold, it becomes bitter and things. Like that. There's a whole bunch of fa- factors associated with it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the McClintock Strait is is the the body of water where you really start to see that old ice come through, and then it gets down further south around King William Island and maybe even south of King William Island. And it can really kind of pack in there and pressure ice is your problem, right? Because ice just, you know, you can just take, take a bunch of ice cubes, put them in a bag and try to, you know, you, you, you force it in together. There's not a lot of room for to put your hand in it for it to move. It'll start to cut your hand and things like that if you don't have some place for it to move. Right. And the McClintock, the, uh, the, the, that, that body of water can be like that. So we're driving a ship into that body of water can be really challenging. And in his case, I think he had a little small steam uh, steam engine um, that that uh, was 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 very weak, um, and they they tried uh, to get uh, they, they they had the opportunity to go to the east of King William or go to the west of Queen William, and we all know what they chose. They chose the west of Queen, King William Island, and they got caught up in pressure ice. But you know, not all is lost because uh, you know, as a matter of uh, fact. Or maybe not. Uh, the ice would melt the next year, and they would get a couple of maybe a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of days of water opening up. That pressure is going to come off the hulls of the ship, and they'll be able to advance in their journey. Mm-hmm. Um, but that didn't happen that year. It didn't happen the next year, and it didn't happen the year after that, wow. which is tragic, yes. right? I mean, it's a, it's a tragic bit of luck for, for all of them. Right. Um, and uh, anyway, so they they got stuck there, and we we all know the well. Maybe we don't all know the story, but the story is that. I mean, there's, there's, some of them left the ship, some of them tried to stay with the ship, and uh, um, pretty tragic outcome for all of them. Um, and uh, had they went east of King William Island, I mean, you know, it's, it's me speculating, but had they went east of King William Island, they may have discovered the Northwest Pass, and we would be talking about them today. Yeah. Or maybe we would be, but just just as a, a footnote, way, right? right? Yeah, this right. is a footnote, cause, right. because the Northwest Passage, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. Right. 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 Um, Canada is developing a, a northern naval facility, Nana Civic. Mm-hmm. Um, did you guys have an opportunity? To yeah. Do that? yeah, 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 yeah. So that, that the north the Nana Civic fluid facility is uh, just north of Arctic Bay, okay. and so there's a road between Arctic Bay. It's about forty two kilometers, um, and the uh, the actual uh, fueling facility uh, is a retired iron ore mining site, hmm. and um, uh, you know, the, I, I don't remember the name of the company, but uh, 
they did a tremendous job being very good stewards of cleaning up after themselves. Mm. Very impressive. Mm. If you get, ever get the opportunity to get up there and see what they did. So as, as the, the, the Navy or the, yeah, the Canadian Armed Forces were building, um, they were building on places that were sanitized and cleaned by the IRR. So as we're building, they were cleaning. And, uh, and it was just a beautiful machine that was going through, and they had a very limited window every year to work up there. So it took, I think it, I think it took about five or six years to kind of complete the work. And so we got up there is about 7.5 million liters of capacity of, for uh, marine diesel. Um, we don't fill it. Uh, uh, annually, and we'll never, we, I shouldn't say we never will, um, but right now our plan is to put fuel in there that we need annually and not uh, put put fuel up there that's, uh, that's going to stay up there in the wintertime. Sure. It's not. We're going to keep it, we're going to empty it every year. Okay. Um, and uh, and it's, it's, it's a site right now that is intended to be dormant during the winter huh. okay. uh, and operating during the summertime because, you know, I think the taxpayers would appreciate that we would want to pay for a whole bunch of people to be up there and there's nobody else up there right. for a fueling facility right. that nobody's yes. going to use, right? right. Totally. Um, Makes sense. And, and so the, uh, uh, it, it'll operate, uh, and as that winter, uh, pardon me, the, the navigable season opens and opens and opens, and it will, mm-hmm. um, that facility will operate longer and longer every year. Sure. Um, so we went up there this year. We, uh, as a matter of fact, we put, if you uh, go on the Harry the Wolf uh, uh, Facebook page, uh, there's ton, there's a bunch of pictures on there so people can see it. Um, the ship uh, went alongside there, did a, a couple of approaches uh, to kind of get a feel of what, what it's like to be alongside there and stuff and uh, get a sense of where we put our hoses and things like that for fueling. Is it is it a facility that is able to accommodate more than one vessel at a time? Or is it just no, it's just, it's just, it's just one. Uh, you can go to anchor there. So the, the vision is that uh, you, when... When you're done fueling, you get away from there and just uh, go to anchor. Sure. Uh, it's right beside of a mountain, um, and uh, one of the one of the fun facts, and if you're walking Harry to Wolf, you'll you'll see evidence of it, um, is that they ran a marathon there for years. They had an Arctic marathon, okay, and it would run from the iron ore plant to Arctic Bay, and they had these markers, um, like mile markers, all the way along the road over the mountain. So it's a pretty tough run to begin with. Uh, pretty steep, but uh, still fun to do. If you're going to go out in the Arctic and run a marathon, that's pretty fun. No um, and uh, uh, they stopped doing it. And so when I was in the Arctic Bay, I was visiting with uh, community leaders there, and we talked about it for a little bit. And I asked them, I said, well, what would you think if uh, you know, the Royal Canadian Navy uh, um, you know, re, uh, repurposed your run and called it the Royal Canadian Navy Arctic Run or Marathon Run? And they, they were thrilled, and uh, and they, they and I and I said yeah because I mean you're you're you, I, you guys don't do it anymore right and they said no we ha- we haven't done it since the uh, the mine shut down and I said that's too bad and he said yeah it was really a lot of fun and we had a lot of folks that uh, were contributing to uh, to the build up of it and there was folks that were coming in and it was just really good fun stuff to do right and uh, and I was like well that, you know that that would be something I bet you that we, we could all sink our teeth into and do on an annual basis. And he asked me if I wanted to sign. And he says, I've got, the, I've got one of the signs. I, I didn't know what he meant. But, okay. uh, yeah. And the more we talked, he says, it's a mile marker. Uh, okay. And I said, if you give me that sign, I will put it up on the bulkhead in the ship by the gym. Oh, and it'll be with this ship for the next 30 years, trust me. Yeah. And he said, done deal. So he brought it back on. So when we opened the ship to visitors, 
he was one of the folks that came on board with uh, uh, with some things, and he had a sign for me. Awesome. And it's it's on our bulkhead. When you walk the ship here today, they'll point it out to you. Do you figure uh, thirty years? I suspect longer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but uh, you know, so thirty years is what do we say we're going to keep frigates for? Twenty five. And what are we into now? We're into 30 now. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, and and uh, Canadian Coast Guard ships, Wilford Laurier, is that, that thing's about four years I old, isn't it? At least. Yeah. At least, I think. Yeah. And she's going into a major refit uh, shortly to change out some engines and stuff. Right. So, you know, maybe it, we take good care of the ship. Uh, and, you know, this crew has done a tremendous job uh, maintaining the ship this year. Um and uh, you know it's it's a you know thirty years is uh, is is a good benchmark. Mm. If you go beyond that, then uh, you know you're you're you've done really really well. Um, and uh, uh, you know I, I can always hope that I'll stay in service for forty or fifty years. And uh, but uh, um, who so knows? Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously there's so much that we could talk about. But um, once you're you're continuing this transit, there was something that I saw that was interesting. And that was. Testing out some anti-submarine warfare. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we um, we brought on our defense research teams, um, and uh, uh, remember earlier when I said you're only restricted by your imagination when it yes. comes to the ship. Yes. Uh, same thing rings true for a sea container. If you can give me a sea container, I can I can turn it into well. So people have already done it. So people have turned it into swimming pools. People have turned them into homes yep. and cottages. Yep. And uh, well, the Navy turned one into a total array system. For uh, for listening underwater for submarines, and um, uh, and and there's more of that kind of stuff to come. There's going to be uh, um, you're going to see sea containers with missile systems in them. Um, you're going to see um, sea containers with uh, you know as hospitals. Uh, I know I, I spoke at Dalhousie uh, uh, well a few years ago now introducing the ship um, at the same time that uh, Quest was um, our our Canadian naval uh, science vessel was being decommissioned. Um, deep concern amongst the, the learning communities um, that uh, they weren't going to, the ships are hard to come by, mm. right? And there's a lot of research that folks want to do. Yep. And there's a lot of money for it too, but there's not a lot of ships to go around. So uh, I was asked to come to uh, Dalhousie and just introduce the ship and to capture their imaginations. And, uh, and you know, we, we really did that um, in quite, quite, a, quite a terrific way. So, you know, when we talk about the ship, um, uh, if you go on board a Canadian Coast Guard ship, you will find places that um, throughout the years, it probably didn't start this way, but throughout the years, there's there's spaces in the ship that are dedicated as labs now. Right. And uh, in Harry Wolf, you won't find anything like that just yet. Um, what you find is uh, a bunch of a bunch of different spaces that are dedicated to do different things because this is a incredibly, there's, there's so many multiple roles that the ship will do, but you won't find a lab on board. And I just said to them, I said, you know, if you're serious about operating off of a Harriet Wolf class ship, I ask you to consider putting labs in sea containers uh, yeah. and, and, you know, and put them someplace that we could pick them up for you and we'll keep them on the quarter deck of the ship. And when we're north um, and we're particularly in a place where you want to conduct some sort of uh, experiments or something like that, uh, fly up. And we'll, we'll, we'll go and get you, and we'll bring you on board. You can do your, your experiments and stuff, and then we'll drop you off at, a, at another spot. You can fly out. And, um, uh, and we, we've got enough, you know, communications capabilities and stuff like that that you can maybe even dial into your lab or whatever kind of work that you're being done to collect data, uh, and that stuff can be transmitted to you even if you're further south. Awesome. 
And so uh, when I, I went back to Dalhousie just to, to, to meet with them, and they showed me six laps. No kidding. Yeah, yeah, That's sea awesome. containers, right. And so, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know that I influenced that, but uh, I, I suspect there's, there are folks who are far smarter than me that looked at that way before I did. And um, uh, recognizing that they, they, if they're going to go on other ships that are, you know, being leased and things like that, they got to come with their own program and their own capabilities. Um, and so they did. And so they have these sea containers now, and uh, I can crane them on board our ship. I have all the capability uh, aft to plug in, even even evolutions if they brought their, if there was toilets and things like that that they wanted to put on board or shower systems and stuff. We got all the plumbing, everything back there, all the electricity back there. You just plug it in, don't worry about it. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, everything's everything's there for them to uh, support. But uh, so to your to your points about the total race system, um, it was um, you know I. I'm going to go ahead and say this, but I'm going to go ahead and also say I don't know. Okay. But I think that um, this is the first time the Canadian Navy has been up north, uh, particularly where we were, and you know, in in the uh, off the coast of Greece Fjord, in Lancaster Sound, with a total ray listening device, and uh, it was deployed. Um, and uh, that that ought to put um, a lot of folks, a lot a lot of different countries, on notice that the Canadian Navy is not going up north to play around. You know, we're, we're, we're up there to do business. And the business is everything that I talked to you about and more, right? Um, and surveillance of, of Canada's north is something that we take very seriously. And, uh, you know, you, you don't want to be embarrassed by getting caught someplace you shouldn't be. Right. Right. And, uh, and, and uh, we haven't found anybody, if your listeners are concerned. Um, there hasn't been uh, that type of thing occur. But we did uh, deploy the, um, the, the listening device throughout our passage um, east mid and west of the arctic and uh we were listening um and um i can tell you that uh you know for the folks that are listening they're saying well yeah if you're nice you can't listen yes we can trust me i can figure out a way to listen Uh, ice isn't going to stop me from listening underwater Um, and so uh yeah uh so that that's that that was one of the functions that we had up north um and uh, one of the many Hey folks, here is a message about our sponsor, Cubic Defense. The episode you're hearing about today speaks about developing high-end capabilities. Such capabilities come from the training that warfighters undertake to be the best prepared that they can be. Cubic is the market leader in training operators to be proficient in the application of their platforms for their warfighting mission. From well-integrated instrumentation systems to game-based learning, to multi-domain, blended, live, virtual, and constructive training environments, Cubic remains the United States' allied and coalition partner of choice to deliver truth in training. Cubic's Total Learning Platform is a maritime, game-based learning platform that has proven to reduce the time-to-train-watch standards on U.S. LCS combatants by 90%. And Cubic's blended, live, virtual, and constructive open standards-based solution enables live and virtual ships and aircraft to train together in a common, secure, synthetic environment. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, Cubic delivers real results. We are proud to have Cubic as a teammate for this podcast, and we thank them for their faith in us to help preserve the voices of military leaders like our guest today. To learn more about Cubic, please visit them at cubic.com.
www.thinkingdeeply.com. Now, let's get back to our chat. Um, you know, another thing, I'm just looking at a picture of Peter Mansbridge and myself. And um, Peter was doing a documentary. On, uh, I, I, I don't know what the name of the documentary is. I do know that it was about the Arctic. Uh, I'm pretty confident it's about Arctic changes. Um, he heard about the Canadian Navy going north. He's uh, a former naval officer himself. Um, he was deeply interested in, uh, in the Arctic. Uh, quite passionate about it. I, I'd submit probably equally as passionate to it as, as me. Um, and uh, he was a tremendous uh, person to have on board the ship uh, with his team. Uh, they arrived with one perspective about the military operating up north, and they left with a completely different perspective. Okay, I gotta ask. Well, I mean, so you know, when you when you come on board a warship, you think you're going to do warship type activities all the time, right? Right, right. But when he saw that we were having barbecues in the communities and affiliation, and how how deeply moved I was uh, at different times and things like that, and the other work that we were doing with um, uh, the other work that we were, we, we were doing with uh, DRDC, there was there was you know there there was a military component, but there was. There's a social component. There's the other government department component. Um, the fact that uh, you know the, all these other government departments have a mandate to perform something up in the north, and they can't they they can't deliver right now. They they need a ship like this to do it. Um, and uh, I think for the the time that they spent on board the ship, they realized that there's a real personality here too, right? And they, I think they really felt that um, that uh, you know the ship is um, it's got a soul, um, and um, I think they really felt it. I, I, I really do. Because, uh, you know, they all, they're on my Christmas card list. <laughs> and they, uh, they all did well. Uh, and they all really, I think they really liked being on board. They followed up with emails. And, um, you know, Peter Mansbridge sent uh, the picture and little notes there that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll keep the rest of my life. Uh, we made him an honorary captain of the ship. Oh, wow. And when I say we made him, I, I asked him if we would be, you know, he, he'll be an honorary captain for the life of the ship. And, you know, he was, he was cautious about that. He was like, okay, what does that mean? Mm. What does that entail? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, we had a frank discussion about uh, how we'll continue to communicate with you, tell you the stories about the ship from time to time. You'll come back and sail with the ship and sail over the crew. Um, you know, a captain might reach out to you at some point and ask you for some advice, right? Um, he might, uh, you know, from one year to another, they'll, they'll tell you the stories. So if we're going to say like, gets in trouble, we might force him to write you a letter. Right, I mean, right. That, those those are some of the things that uh, that, that we do to, uh, um, you know, to, to our sailors if they get themselves in, in a little bit of trouble and it's not too bad. And, sure. You know, you're gonna sit down and you're gonna write a letter to uh, Captain Mansbridge and you're gonna explain yourself to him, and uh, and you know he'll 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 take a look at it and he may provide you with some sound advice. Right. Right. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah. So he came on board and pond. Uh, he came up to Grease Fjord. Uh, you know, it was him who introduced me to Larry, um, which was uh, just wonderful. Uh, he told me about Larry before he, um, before he went into Grease Fjord, and he broke away with Larry because he was doing his documentary with him. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we dropped him off in Arctic Bay. Sure. Uh, anyway, that picture, uh, he, he spoke to my ship's company the night before he left. Uh, and I asked him to go down to the cafeteria if he wouldn't mind uh, uh, talking to the ship's company. He had five slides. And in his five slides, he talked about, uh, you know, uh, what it's like to be a Canadian abroad and why, you know, why being a Canadian is so important. Why are we so unique? There's something really, there's just, being Canadians, particularly if you're a Canadian that's, uh, that's functioning abroad, 
or doing this type of work, um, you're different than everybody else. You, uh, I, don't, I can't explain it, but there's just something about being a Canadian in uniform or as a diplomat or um, as an NGO or working as an uh, other government department. Your, your approach to, to helping people, that's it, isn't it? It's helping people. That's what we do. Um, and uh, yeah, he had three, three different stories about people who help people um, uh, abroad and in Canada. And it's a beautiful story. And uh, he had one picture of, of his friend who passed away. And uh, it was really quite moving for me. And uh, on the flight, that guy, <laughs> I uh, said um, to the crew that he's going to be an honorary captain. And uh, I said, um, I asked him to take that picture with me. Yeah. Pretty good. I think he's picked a great, uh, a great ambassador yeah. for the ship. Um, yeah, he tells a good story. Yeah. That's for sure. Awesome. Yeah. He's sincere. He's exactly the way, you know, if you're watching him on the news and you're having a conversation with him, he's not different. He's precisely like that. And uh, he's incredibly sincere, man. And, uh, you know, we were really quite lucky to have him and his team on board. They were, they were, they were terrific guests. Um, and uh, I can't wait to see the documentary. I was just going to say. Yeah. You know, what, 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 I, don't, I don't know what it's going to be about. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be about a whole bunch of things, mm-hmm. um, you know. Um, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't really truly know what it's going to be about. Well, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. Um, you know, you mentioned about, about uh, Canadians abroad. And so it's not lost on me that going from Halifax up north into the Arctic and westward, You'll be going around Alaska right. and coming back down into Victoria, where you are now. Yeah, um, I would imagine you would have probably met with some uh, other Navy counterparts, like or, Russia. Oh, oh, really? I was thinking United States. Well, United yeah, States, yeah. yeah. So we, I mean, we, 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 when we got down to uh, to Dutch Harbor, uh, I mean, we we started off the United States Coast Guard on the on the east east coast side okay. uh, with two uh, United States Coast Guard ships and. Um, Kimball was uh, was the United States Coast Guard ship that uh, freed up a berth for us so we could go alongside. It was oh, really nice. quite nice of them. Nice. They left. They weren't scheduled to get underway until three o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, um, they left their berth early uh, to uh, to allow us to get in there and uh, come out and take some pictures with us and uh, do some uh, just do some operations together so they could get a you know we get a feel of one another. Yep. So we did that. But on our way down, um, there is uh, Deal Mead Islands. There's two twin islands just uh, in in uh, the Bering Strait, okay. and where the United States and Russia are separated by about two miles. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And uh, I was going to shoot the gap in between those. Right on. But uh, when I was talking about that, I didn't actually study the body of water just yet. I was this was way back before I was uh, even leaving Halifax. Okay. And then when the time came that we were going to go down through the to the strait, I, I realized that uh, it's it's actually broken down in shipping lanes, and it's actually in, in such a way that uh, you you be you know uh, you got to be a professional mariner out there, and you be be pretty uh, I wouldn't say reckless or anything like that, but you know you're just not following the the effort that they put in place for the traffic separation scheme that they put there. You got to use it, right? Right. And um, and really have no business going in between the two islands because other than it's just going to be fun to do sure. and take some nice pictures and stuff. So sure. we stayed on the um, uh, on the the American because uh, the break the, the traffic lanes go around the islands and there's a there's a Russian side and an American side. And um, the Russians have these brand new uh, Arctic patrol vessels of their own oh. um, that, um, that, 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 you know, they, they don't look too different from ours. Um, uh, uh, anyway, they, they were on patrol and um, I wanted to cross the international dateline. 
And if I was to do that north of uh, the islands, uh, that would have brought me into uh, Russia territorial waters. Right. Still legal. I mean, it's not like a, it's an international strait. I can go wherever I want. Sure. But, you know, uh, you know, again, full disclosure to your listeners, I think they'll appreciate this. The uh, Canadian government had a writ dropped. And uh, your government officials, your, your military people, RCMP and all that stuff, they don't like to draw attention to themselves when the government's uh, going through an election like that. And uh, so we didn't. Uh, we we uh, played fairly low key and went down through the strait, crossed over the international date line, clearing away from uh, Russian waters. Russian patrol vessel stayed well within its uh, its body of water, its territorial lines and stuff. And it just patrolled right on the line. It didn't, didn't cross over and try to come over and intercept us or anything like that. They were perfectly uh, perfect gentlemen at sea or, or, or maybe maybe perfect uh, ladies at sea. I, right. I don't know. We didn't get to talk to them. Sure. Um, and uh, they paid a little bit of attention to us. I'm sure they were taking pictures of the Harry the Wolf. Um, I don't blame them. It's a good looking ship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so we crossed the international dateline. We, we told the ship's company that not only did you go north and go all the way through the Northwest Passage, you also crossed the international dateline. And all this stuff's a big deal for an East Coast sailor, right? Because an right. East Coast sailor will never, ever come onto the West Coast unless they're posted here. Right. But to come on a ship and to actually sail the West Coast is pretty rare. Um, when was the last time this happened? In 1954. 1954. Right. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. everybody, like, I mean, and that's kind of where I mentioned that this is this is a historic opportunity. And for me, like, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here because not only is it the first of class ship, not only is first time, you know, for the ship to be doing this mission and circumnavigating North America, but first time uh, in 15 you know, since 1954. Four. So, yeah. like, I mean, there's so many firsts. That was HMCS Labrador. Okay, um, right. And uh, that was truly Canada's first Arctic offshore patrol vessel. And okay, oddly enough, that. decommissioned and and passed over to the Department of Transport, Transport Canada today, but yeah. Department of Transport back in the day, yeah. by Vice Admiral Harry Dole. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's he, amazing yeah. the different, the, the, the little fingers that all connect to everything, right. you know? Right. Yeah, he after the Dew Line was built, um, uh, the focus, of course, was uh, in other regions of the world, mm-hmm. um, and they could they could afford to step away from the Arctic uh, from a naval standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Department of Transport needed a ship that could break ice for the communities that mm-hmm. I talked about earlier, right? and, and you know the real infancy stages of the Canadian Coast Guard. Um, to where they got and went over to the Coast Guard at the, at the, the, to inevitably to uh, to do that type of work. Okay. And there's people in the Canadian Coast Guard, or at least people that, uh, that recently retired that have sailed on Labrador. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, I had the pleasure to speak to um, a group in Halifax, Nova Scotia, a few years back. And after I finished speaking, a couple of folks came up to see me and, and talked to me about what our fence was. The ship has these two wings that we can deploy outside the ship to keep the ship stable uh, for people that it's, uh, have weak stomachs at sea. So anyway, uh, Labrador in her first year broke off her port uh, fin stabilizer. Oh, okay. And um, uh, one of the one of the gentlemen said, uh, said, you know, thank God for the starboard fin stabilizer. And I said, one fin stabilizer really works? And he said, yeah, really, really works. Huh. And so it was, it was just another, you know, these little nuggets that you get from these people who throughout the years have operated up north and worked on uh, different types of vessels uh, that we learned so much about the ship even before we got it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and that was just you know one of those many things that uh, and we can deploy or house a fin stabilizer on its own. 
so they don't go out together and come in together, right? Oh, okay. And, uh, and that's particularly when we're, we're launching boats and things like that, uh, that we don't want to interact with the fin stabilizer, if we, particularly if it's rough and the ship's twisting back and forth. But we can keep one out. And if we keep keep one out, uh, it actually provides stability, not just for the boat, but for the crew as well. Interesting. Are, are they about midships? Or? Yep. Okay. Yeah, they're actually directly behind the... Uh, uh, you get uh, boat bays that are forward, yeah. uh, just behind the uh, forward boat base. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So almost, yeah, almost midships. Yeah. Just forward and midships. Yeah. Um, so with regards to the U.S., did you visit any uh, any U.S. Navy folks? I'm just kind of curious what they thought of the ship. If, if oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we we sailed with the United States Navy officer on board. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I did. Yeah. Know that. Yeah. So we sailed with this gentleman uh, to uh, for for the benefit of the United States Navy. There. Yeah. He's been writing about the ship. He's been writing about Arctic operations and. Uh, in a similar way that I did for the Canadian Navy. Sure. Um, right. You know, this is his first uh, uh, trip, and he's going to stay with us um, all the way around. He he loved it so much, he asked if he could stay. No kidding. Yeah, he was, awesome. he was supposed to get off in Victoria, and, he, and yeah. then he asked if he could uh, continue on. And I, I didn't have a problem with it, sure. and he just had to check with his leadership because yeah. the American Navy, their progression for officers and their career is really quite different from ours. Right. Um, and they he's got to be careful on his timings and stuff because he doesn't want to miss a... Um, professional sure. gate to, uh, to to pass through and then and right. then be left behind. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so you're now midway. You're in Victoria. Um, how did the ship hold up in comparison to what your expectations were and what you're finding reality is? Yeah. So um, when the, when we first got the ship and brought it into service, uh, there was some pretty unique things with the engines that uh, gave me an aha moment. Hmm. Like uh, I would order speed changes and nothing would happen for about 26 seconds okay and then all of a sudden i would get what i wanted and when i went to go stop it it would take 26 seconds for it to stop huh. and that can be that that's okay if you're out in the middle of the ocean right but if you're trying to drive a ship alongside and you're barreling down on a jetty about four knots and you want to stop and it's going to take you 26 seconds to stop you have to do the yeah, mental yeah right and uh and when you're not prepared for it you're like whoa yeah. what is going on right. and then then when you get what you ordered and the you can feel the ship shaking to slow down mm-hmm. and then you order stop because you slowed down sufficiently to what you wanted and it still goes on for 26 seconds you start going backwards it starts getting pretty embarrassing um and so uh just to say that when the first time i went alongside uh it was pretty embarrassing um and uh w- once we kind of learned that I, I spent some time working with the uh the contractors and ge man the folks that uh that tune the engines and stuff and uh we figured out that you could uh, you could tune the engines in such a way that uh, you can you can bring that close to zero. So you know you get what you ordered uh, almost immediately. Cool. And so uh, yeah, so uh, you know if 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 anybody was asked me about uh, the uh, how the ship functioned, I would say that 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 was the that was the biggest surprise that I had. Mm-hmm. And um, then of course uh, operating up north, um, one of the unique things about the ship is that it's it's flat and um and when the ship gets into an ice flow mm-hmm. it's heavy mm-hmm. it's really heavy and so when you go like when i went to go park the ship for the first time at night i ordered the ship to appropriate speed to introduce it into the ice and to force myself into the flow and then i ordered stop but i kept going and i i just it, it was very it, it just slid into the ice almost like um like a sled if anybody's ever gone uh, sledding off the side of a snow hill or something like that okay. it did that and i found that really fascinating that uh 
you know, it, we were just kind of looking at each other and we're like, it can stop any minute now. <laughs> and, like, uh, and, and, it, and it didn't. It just kept on going and going and going and going. I said, wow, this is fascinating. That's uh, The ship is uh, making so much easy work of this of this ice and it just keeps on it's just so beautifully designed to to break ice huh. and um anyway that, that was that was one of the other things um and of course driving driving a ship takes years of experience particularly if you're going to be the captain of the ship um and uh driving in terrible weather on a ship like this that doesn't have a keel um if you don't know what you're doing it can be a pretty nasty ride for the sailors but uh, if you know what you're doing, you can you, you understand wave height and timings between waves and things like that, and you you know how to ride a wave, and, and, and you, you kind of apply all the knowledge of being a good mariner at sea. You can get a really smooth ride out of the ship in really bad weather. I was yeah. I, I was a question I asked uh, about you know how how stable was the yeah. ship. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you can get a really nice ride out of the ship in really bad weather. Can you conduct rads with the yeah. ship? Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, we Good. did replenishment at sea. Um, we did post acceptance trials for that. My RAS gear is on the on the flight deck, so when you run a span wire to the flight deck, it's pretty interesting, particularly if you've got a pretty strong wind on the beam and you're on the downwind side of the of the tanker. You will have a tendency to uh, steer inwards towards the tanker, and it's kind of a weird feeling because your bow is kind of turned inwards towards the tanker as your as your stern is kicking out. Um, as you're trying to stay up in the wind, but at the same time keep your stern in close enough so you can run a span wire. Huh. Um, the ship handled really well beside a tanker, uh, but that was kind of a weird thing to, to experience. You wouldn't experience on a frigate because the span wire goes about midships, right? right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's lower too, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't have the impact on the wind. But I have such a high sail that the wind has a huge impact on me. Mm-hmm. And of course that flop bottom... Uh, if I'm standing still and the wind grabs me, I just move the ship sideways pretty easily. Right, right, right. Um, last question about kind of the ship and, and it's, it's uh, it, you know, you're doing this very long uh, deployment. How has it been endurance-wise? Like in terms of like you take on fuel. Yeah, um, yeah. So we, we learned a lot about endurance about the ship. So when we're operating up north, we, we like to operate with, uh, we understood that we had to operate with two MDGs, one in the forward engine room, one in the after engine room, in order to facilitate suction, uh, to keep, you know, the, the suction from freezing up. Okay. Um, but as, if, as time... And MDGs are... Motor diesel generators, okay. gotcha. motorized diesel generators. The ship's a high voltage ship, so it's a, it's a, it's a diesel electric ship. Okay. Um, and so that's what we understood from our post-acceptance trials and our winter trials. Um, so we got fuel in Nuke, and then we were supposed to get fuel in Arctic Bay, and we are supposed to get fuel in Kudlukta. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, the tanker was a no-show in Arctic Bay, and the tanker was extraordinarily late for Kudlukta, so we had to move on. Uh, but what we learned about the plant was that we can run one motor diesel generator at a time and just move them every hour, fore and aft, and that allowed me to reduce my fuel consumption considerably and maintain a relatively high speed on one MDG and uh, conserve fuel because one MDG really, it just sipped fuel. It didn't burn a lot of fuel. Okay. And I can break ice in one MDG. So there, there's a lot of power there too. Right. And so um, on paper, I can drive from Halifax to Swimalt through the Northwest Passage on one tank of gas. 
Um, and that's that's pretty significant, right? For awesome. a big, big, heavy ship like this to be able to do that. Yeah. I certainly wouldn't plan it because, I mean, you're not going to get a lot of business out of the ship if you're just driving, right? right. right. Uh, yeah. And you need a full tank of gas to do work and operations and to respond to emergencies and, and to race because you, you don't race to a fight by walking backwards. You race to a fight with all four motor diesel generators running and you're doing best speed on all four MDGs to get to where you need to go. Mm-hmm. And you're going to burn a lot of fuel when you do it. Yeah. But um, yeah, so just from um, a fuel consumption capacity, it surprised us. And when we got to um, Dutch Harbor, we crunched our numbers for how much fuel we had remaining. We had enough fuel to make it to Hawaii from Dutch Harbor if we wanted to go. And no we're, kidding. Yeah, we were joking about going to Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind the fuel, we'll just go to Hawaii and get fuel there. Uh, I, wouldn't anyway, made, yeah. I wouldn't have made that course correction. Right. <laughs> right. But it's just, just fascinating that, uh, you know, the more you operate the ship, the more you learn about the ship. I mean, you can take a bunch of data points and put it on paper and, and, and they, they, they won't be too far off. Hmm. But um, but once you operate the ship, you really find the, the real nuances to it. You just find a lot of nuances about the ship that, um, that uh, you, you wouldn't, you, you, you have to run it to learn it. Let's pause for this message from Talus. Talus is proud to have served HMCS Harry DeWolf through this and other deployments. The Aegis project which Talus is delivering is unique. As a relational, performance-based contract, it has the potential to deliver faster, better, and more cost-effective procurement. It is the best model Canada has for creating the step change in innovation the Navy wants. Recognized among Canada's top R&D spenders, Talus brings leading digital capabilities in AI, big data, cybersecurity, connectivity, and soon quantum to augment its engineering strength. As Canada's partner of choice for Aegis, Talus is committed to empowering Canadian industry to support this program for decades to come. More than 120 businesses are engaged already with partners like Cove and through programs like Synergy. Talus is tapping Canada's innovation ecosystem and Canadian businesses to bring new capability and digital sustainment to Canada sailors. Now, let's get back to our chat. So what's the next step for HMCS Harry DeWolf? So we leave here. We're going to go down south to San Diego. We're going to pick up some United States Coast Guard operators who uh, are specialized in drug interdiction operations. We're going to integrate ourselves with the uh, operational command down there. They're going to start feeding in some intelligence to us. Okay. And we're going to go further south to uh, chase drug runners. Um, and uh, we're going to traverse the uh, Panama Canal. Um, in San Diego, we're going to introduce the ship to the United States Navy on the West Coast. And then we'll introduce the ship to the Jamaican government. Uh, and then we're going to introduce the ship to Norfolk, um, to the uh, United States Navy. Um, I anticipate uh, that some leadership will uh, join us for the final transit from Norfolk to Halifax. And I'll get everybody home for Christmas on the 16th of December. Right on, yeah. right on. Well, it's exciting times. And uh, uh, it, it just in terms of like uh, thinking about the overall fleet, there's going to be six AOPs, mm-hmm. AOPVs, right. that are that the Canadian Navy is going to be operating. Yeah. Um, what do you know? What the the split is between East and West Coast? Yeah, so you're going to have four on the East Coast and two on the West Coast, and number three is coming out here. Okay, um, that's Max Bernay. Okay, beautiful. From what I've seen thus far and what I've certainly heard, it's going to be like you said, a multi-role 
vessel that's got so much capacity, and I, I, I suspect you'll be learning still a lot more. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think, you know, frankly, from just, I think there's going to be, um, I, I already know that other navies are jealous because it really contributes to, to a scalable navy. It really does. It is the answer to every navy's needs to have a vessel that can do this type of work and allow our major capital warships to do the important work that they have to do. Uh, not to say that the work that we do isn't important, because it is, but it's different. Right. It's, it's a different type of, uh, of, of military support. You know, if you ask uh, the Canadian Armed Forces to, uh, to respond to humanitarian disaster relief function, um, you know, insofar as the warship's concerned, uh, an AOPB or, or a frigate, they can be ready to go in about 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, you'll see on my quarter deck uh, uh, when I leave uh, Squamalt Harbor, uh, uh, Squamalt fitted me out with um, pack-up kits, humanitarian disaster relief pack-up kits. And uh, I've got uh, two of them on my quarter deck right now. In the event that there's some sort of emergency that happens further south, uh, we are, we're already packed up. So if there's doctors and nurses or other people that need to come on board, they just need to fly out. We'll, bring, we'll put them on board and the pack-up kits are there ready, ready to support. Fantastic. Yeah. So um, anyway, just to say that uh, the, these ships are, are what Canada needed uh, at a perfect time uh, for domestic Canada's problems. Um, and uh, uh, I call them problems, uh, but they're, they're not, they're, maybe that's not the right term to use, but... Uh, um, it's the it's the answer to the call to different situations that are occurring in the in the, in the world, mm-hmm. and in particular up north, where um, many countries are focused on the Arctic, and um, they probably don't always have Canada's interest in mind. Mm-hmm. They have their own, and you can't blame them, no. right, for no. for having personal interests, particularly when it comes to you know feeding their people and things like that. But uh, we have to be cognizant of the fact and not be irresponsible to that, and. Um, we're not, you know, uh, you, 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 you didn't get a slush breaker Canada. You got a real capable ship that can break ice. Uh, you can tell that I'm reluctant to call it an icebreaker because people translate that into a service and that's not what we do. Right. Um, I probably should have started with this in, in a way, but I'm happy to ask you now. Because it's a new ship, there's, uh, in theory, different ways to train, like to prepare your sailors to come aboard and and integrate into a ship like you know there's different modalities of training that people use augmented reality mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff um but being i would imagine digitally designed you know perhaps there's yeah there is so uh we did a integrated computer-based training uh program for the ship and it was uh the training is designed specifically uh for different trades uh, i had to do it all as the captain yep. um and uh it is exactly that it's um you have um you got an avatar that's in some of the training where you get the avatar to do different things and different functions, or you physically do it by, by going into a space and, and, and turning things on and starting motors and stuff like that, teaching you how to lock a shaft by physically picking things up and moving it in place and, and uh, literally lock a shaft and demonstrate that you can lock a shaft, uh, turning all the communication suites on um, and going through all the different places in the ship to do that. It takes about three hours to do the computer-based training just to go through that process to turn the ship on. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can, you can picture, you're doing it at the, at the leisure of you're sitting in a chair. So if you're going to do it for real on board a ship, there's a lot of walking around that you have to do in order to right. get it done. Right. Um, and also driving the ship, we have a computer-based simulator 
that's very much like driving the ship. I mean, you walk into a room, you close the door behind you, and it is a mock-up of, um, uh, it doesn't look exactly like a, an AOPV bridge, but it's got the equipment on the bridge, and it's got the same kind of look and feel for operating a radar and operating the, the chart system and operating the helm and the throttles and stuff like that. And physically driving the ship, it responds in the same way that an AOPV would at sea in different climates. You can introduce all kinds of different winds and currents and things like that. And you literally drive in any harbor in the world. And it's that real. Like you, when you're sitting there in the simulator, you can actually make yourself seasick in there. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yes, it's that good. It doesn't, it's not like it moves or anything like that, but just because the visual displays are moving, right. it can really disorientate you and make yourself seasick. Right, right. Wow. Well, Commander Gleason... Commanding Officer of HMCS Harry DeWolf. It has been an absolute pleasure to be aboard. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I thank you so much for sharing your journey thus far, uh, both personally and as Commanding Officer of Harry DeWolf. And I tell you, it, it means a lot to me in one sense. There was somebody that told me when I started this journey of doing this podcast that you're preserving of history. Mm. And um, so I often think that when I do these chats because I hope that it is preserving that history and it's preserving what you guys have done. So it's just another element of being part of this journey that I'm thankful to and I appreciate you. A lot. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank, thanks for coming. It really mean, it means a lot to, to me and it means a lot to the ship's company that uh, we have people that are, um, uh, that are willing to uh, help us share our story. It is a big deal and getting the opportunity to talk about um, you know, affiliation, um, the experiences of the sailors, um, and, uh, and the important work that we're doing up north, and to let people know what some of the changes that, um, that you know, we're personally seeing. Um, you know, I, I know earlier on I, I dismissed the notion about, um, you know, you see a warm day up in the Arctic and, uh, and it's making the news. Um, you'll see a warm day up in the Arctic and you also see warm days in the dead of winter down here. But, you know, that, that's, that's not suggesting that, you know, things aren't changing dramatically. And I really wanted to leave the impression with your listeners that um, the stuff that's happening underwater is the real telltale. You know, you're always going to see ice up north. Um, uh, it's the other stuff that's happening that's going to cause that major shift in focus and attention up in the north. Um, and that's why we're doing this. I mean, that's why we're, we're, we're empowering um, the, the Canadian government. The Canadian government's empowering us. Um, and other government's departments to fulfill their roles that Canadians expect them to do. And I'm, I'm hoping that we do it well enough that people are proud. I suspect you will. I think you are. And um, I'm fascinated by this mission, I'm, I'm, and I'm proud to be aboard. And I just think, um, if I can say, from my perspective, just anybody that's aboard this ship that has had the opportunity to see the things that you do, because most will never see where you've been, mm. um, it's it's a privilege to hear that mm. hear the stories because i'm getting appreciation for it that i otherwise wouldn't have had so i gotta tell you just being aboard and saying the first time it's been in victoria there's only one first right you know no, you're and right. so to be here and to kind of feel part of it i, I gotta tell you you know it's, it means a lot to well, me Joel, you you are part of it Thank right you. i mean the fact that you're uh, telling the story uh that's that, that makes it a huge part of it. I appreciate that. I appreciate that very much. Thank you again. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, folks. 
Please join us for our next episodes where we will continue our chat with Commander Corey Gleason as he continues his first-hand account of the inaugural deployment of HMCS Harry DeWolf, Canada's first Arctic and offshore patrol vessel and its historic circumnavigation of North America. Please join us for that episode and please like and subscribe so you don't miss any of our great guests and topics. We hope you have a great day everyone and always remember to go bold. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.